of the book, remember that Moses really did not write five books as such. He wrote this material. Uh, part of it he acted like an editor and put it in together. Some of it was revealed to him. Others he wrote as a historian. And he simply write, wrote this material, and we have divided it up into what we call five books. Uh, Genesis is a word that literally means in the beginning, and it's taken from the very first statement in the book, in the beginning. Exodus deals with the departure. It's just that period of that, that body of material that Moses wrote that deals with the departure of the Israelites from Egypt, or the Exodus, and so we just name it Exodus. And then we'll get over to Leviticus, because that part of the material dealt with the Levitical priesthood, and they're being separated to be priests of God, and so we just call that part Leviticus. Moses didn't. Just, just another part of, this, of the material to him. Numbers deals with the numbering of the Israelites for battle in order to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, and so we call that part of the material numbers. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the word dut, the root meaning is second. It's the second stating of the law. And in Deuteronomy, Moses goes back to the law that was given in Exodus, and he recounts a lot of the history of the Jews to remind that generation. And then there is some interpretation of the law. In other words, some things that are just simply stated earlier are given with interpretation in Deuteronomy. And so we take this body of material and divide it up into these five sections, and we're up to the section that we've titled Exodus for tonight. We start out with the Israelites uh, being oppressed, and uh, in verse 8, you read, there was a new king who did not know Joseph, and he came to Tyre in Egypt. Uh, through archaeology, we learned that at the time that uh, Joseph was in, in Egypt, right about that time, the Egypt had been conquered by a group of people called the Haskos. And the Haskos were really of Semites, of, of Semitic origin, just like the Israelites. And when Joseph was carried into captivity and then wound up that high in the house of Pharaoh, it was at the time when the Haskos had really conquered Egypt. And he arose to that very prominent position and then had brought his people in to, to settle in the land of Goshen. Okay, after the Haskos, the Egyptians won their country back. They fought and defeated the Haskos. And so then we have a new regime, a new dynasty, a new uh, emperor taken over in Egypt. And so now we have uh, a people who do not have a tie-in with the Joseph and the Israelite people. And not only do they not, do they not have a tie-in with them, but the Israelites have a tie-in with a past regime that had actually con conquered Egypt. Okay? Now, a new king then, the way the Bible just states, a new king who did not jo know Joseph came to power. In verse 9, he said to the people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us, and we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Uh, put yourself in their position, uh, they have the same have the same concern that maybe people like in Florida and California because of all the Mexicans that are moving in. And what they're saying is, hey, these people are going to outnumber us in a very short time. And everything is going to change as a result of this. Uh, it's the concern that uh, that really this in South Africa, the whites have there. 
uh, as the black was getting his equality in the South. Uh, the big concern of the Southerner, you know, they, we often point at how liberal-minded the Northerner was and how the Southerner supposedly was such a, a hard hit. But the Southerner's big concern was the fact that uh, he had big areas of land where the largest part of the population was black. And so it wasn't a matter of just equality for him. It was a matter of, of surrendering political power and wondering what was going to happen when he surrendered that power. And so, in the same way, and I say all of that not to get into any of that, except to say that, that what you see here is a historical truth that has probably been played itself over and over throughout history, and ought to help you identify with the Egyptians at this point in time, that they have a very honest concern about these people who obviously are multiplying. In fact, uh, from what I've read in Russia, uh, they're concerned, the white Russians, are concerned about the Muslims. See, the Muslims make up about 35 million people in Russia. And the Muslims have big families. And they're multiplying a lot faster than the white Russians. And Russia's very concerned about that. And they're, they're keeping a watch on that. In the United States, we know that the people of South America and Mexico uh, are multiplying uh, a lot faster than the Caucasians. And so up here, and so we're keeping uh, a watch on that kind of thing. So he looked at it. He does the same thing that people do today. And he sees that they're multiplying, he has an honest concern, and then he's going to put them in bondage. All right, now, what we can note at the very first is that God has forecast this. And remember, first of all, we said that the rest of the Bible was going to be based on the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he promised him, a na uh, number one, he'd make a great nation out of him, and number two, he's going to give him the land of Canaan, and number three... Uh, he promised that someone from his seed would come to bless the entire earth. Well, then again, when he reiterated that promise in the 15th chapter of Genesis, he told Abraham that his seed would, would go into a strange country and that they would actually be oppressed there for 400 years. And But during that time, he would make a nation out of them, and then he would bring them out and pass judgment on the nation that had oppressed them, and then he would leave them in, in judgment over the land of Canaan. And what was happening from God's standpoint, in the land of Canaan, they were corrupt and ungodly, and he was going to make a great nation out of the Israelites and then use them in judgment over the Canaanites. At the same time, judge Egypt. So hold your place here and flip back there to Genesis uh, 15. Uh, Genesis 15 and verse uh, 13 uh, through 15. Barbara, you want to read that one? Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Okay, and then in, and six, okay. in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, we can see that it's interesting to me that we see something happen in a very natural way, and we can look and we can see why that... Uh, uh, you know, the new king uh, came on the throne. Uh, we can see why the attitude toward the Israelites. And yet we see God has already had perfect foreknowledge of this. And we see something about the providence of God 
in that how God works without tampering with the will of anyone. And so God sees this. He's made the decision. He's not going to do anything about it. And he's going to allow them to oppress them. But in the process of, of taking them as slavery and oppressing them, the Israelites will grow into a great nation of people. Well, then something's going to happen. Egypt is the strongest country on the face of the earth at this time. Egypt was like Russia or the United States today. That was, that was it. That was the powerhouse of the world. Egypt was in idolatry. And all the world is in idolatry. And so God wants to reveal himself as the true God. And he's going to use the, the job of the Israelite people will be to reveal the true God to the world. And then eventually to reveal the Messiah. But first they had to reveal the true God to the world. All right. Now, God is going to allow them to be oppressed. He's going to allow them to be put in slavery. Uh, he's going to, they're going to be in a totally submissive situation with Egypt. But then he knows all the time that he will use that situation then to deliver them and in the deliverance make himself known as the one true God. He'll, make it, he'll implant that on the mind of the Israelites in such a way that it'll come all the way to, well, here we are today. And there's not a Jew anywhere on this earth that doesn't, could not tell you in vivid detail about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And you can trace history reading backwards all the way to the time of Christ and begin at Christ and read your secular Jewish history along with the Bible. You, in fact, you can read the Bible and go to the secular history and you will not find a time when you do not find Israelites who have that one event firmly planted on their mind. So it would allow God to make his impact. He would also do it on Egypt, and he would do it to the other countries. At the same time, uh, we see God's concern for sin in that the, he was going to use them to judge the Amorites. And notice the statement he made there that the iniquity of the Amorites was not full yet. In other words, the indication is that we have sin, but we, when we reach the point that there just seems to be no turning back whatsoever, when we're just totally corrupt in our thinking, well, then the long-suffering of God runs out and God passes judgment. It happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened at the time of the flood. And he said it'll happen with Egypt. Then it'll happen with the Amorites. It reaches that point when the long-suffering and the patience of God runs out and then God passes judgment. Okay, so they go into the oppressed situation. Notice in verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And you can go back and check your various archaeology books, and you can read about Ramses and also uh, Pithom uh, that, that is mentioned there. Okay, now, <clears throat> verse 15, the new king said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, again, uh, the command to kill the boys and let the girls live. Well, again, we read this, and you leave the Bible, go to secular history, and we find that... Uh, this again, this is not an unusual thing, that if a country is in control of another one, and that country continues to multiply to the point that they're afraid of them, to simply pass a law, let's go ahead and kill the boys and let the girls live, that this was not an unusual type thing. That in, in, obviously, throughout all history, it's, it's the men that have rebelled and warred and, and would really pose a threat, not, not the girls. And so what he does here, very, a very common thing that might occur and has occurred any number of times in history. The midwives refused to obey. In the book of Hebrews, they're complimented for their faith. Uh, they would not obey. We learn a, a little bit of principle there. Uh, in the uh, book of Romans, in the 13th chapter, along with some other passages of the Bible, 
we're taught that we're to obey the laws of the land and that the powers that be are ordained by God. In other words, they have their existence uh, as a result of God allowing that. But we also see here that although it's true that God's people obey the laws of the land, that when the law of the land flies right in the face of the law of God, you submit to the law of God. Remember the statement that uh, uh, Peter made, uh, we must obey God rather than you, whenever they were told not, not to preach. And so here, they obeyed, they, they refused to obey, and as a result, they actually showed their faith in God. And I think the reason they're complimented so highly in the book of uh, Hebrews it seems to be, you might think, well, that was an actual thing to do, I mean, after all. But really, Egypt is the powerhouse, and you're in slavery, and you've been told by your master to do something. And he has everything in the world to offer. Uh, this other doesn't have anything but oppression. There's only one thing that would cause them to disobey Pharaoh, and that's their belief in God. That was the only thing. And so that's why that the Hebrew writer complimented them so highly. There was no other motivation for their action except their belief in God and then they went contrary to the odds when they went ahead and obeyed God. Okay, now there's a Levite woman that's introduced in the second chapter uh, who gives uh, birth to uh, Moses. The word Moses itself means drawn out of water and uh, he is put in the Nile River and the Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe and she spots the child uh, she's attracted to the child. Uh, then the sister, Miriam, in verse 7, asks Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Of course, we know where she's going. And so we see something about the providence of God. They were doing everything they could to save Moses. Uh, you know, they, they put him in the, in, the, in the little basket, put him in the water. Uh, he was spotted. Uh, uh, they apparently did, again, maybe something similar when people have a some puppies, and they take them and drop them by a church. We have them drop by ours and or wherever, and they're thinking that that when you come in, that the kids are going to get attracted to those little dogs, and they'll take one, they'll take they'll take them home. And so in the same way that uh, that Moses' parents have operated from the standpoint that here's a little baby, and if we put him and float him on down to where Pharaoh's daughter bathes and all that wealth and all, that they might just be attracted to that baby and take him in. And so, again, a very natural thing. They did it. Uh, and then Miriam has followed the baby on down. And when they do take him in, she, she right volunteers her service. And without their knowing it, we've got Moses' mother in there to nurse Pharaoh. And so we see the providence of God working in such a way where they are doing everything they possibly can. And yet God is, knows this is happening and, and has brought the situation about. Okay, now Moses grows up. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, verse 11. Uh, he killed the Egyptian. And uh, the next day went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, rebuked them. Uh, they lashed back at Moses, let, them know, let him know that he had killed an Egyptian. And so Moses then was aware that the killing was, was not hidden. But by the same token, he's puzzled that, uh, that they don't realize what they're doing. Uh, Moses is puzzled about their not understanding some things about him. I believe personally that Moses, he was educated in all the ways of the Egyptian. His mother had brought him up and taught him all the things of the Israelites. All of this period of history that we've just read, that, that was something that the Israelites carried with them. 
And Moses is writing from the tablets that, you know, we've already discussed as we went through Genesis. Moses was taught that, that information. That's how he come to believe in the, in the true God and that these were the people of God. And, the, and when God later on would speak to Moses and say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, see, that don't mean anything to Moses except he already knows about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Moses, I believe, already had it figured out that he must be the one that's chosen to be the deliverer for God's people because he had been brought up there in Pharaoh, educated in all that way, and he knew from reading the material and everything like that that they were supposed to be delivered from that. But then his, his offering was rejected, and he winds up as somebody now that uh, in the eyes of the Egyptians is, a, is turned on the Egyptians. And of course, they knew all the time his, his origin was with the Israelites. Okay, when Pharaoh heard, verse 15, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled to Midian. Now, we can go back. We won't take the time here, but you can trace uh, the Midianites into the lineage of Abraham by his wife, Pentura. Now, priest of Midian had seven daughters. Okay, and Moses goes out, uh, is involved in a situation there of helping them feed their flocks, and then he takes the daughter to wife of the priest of Midian there. And then in chapter 3, we get into the account of the, uh, the burning bush. Uh, let's see, uh, starting in uh, chapter 3, Sandy, read that uh, first uh, four verses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led the flock the far side of the desert and came to Herod, or Herod, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from the wind bridge. <clears throat> Moses saw that the bridge was on fire and did not go up. So Moses thought, I will go over and take his plane flight. But the bridge was not going up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over the wood, God called him in from the wind bridge. Moses, Moses, Moses says, Here I am. Okay, now notice something there. In uh, verse 4 it says, God called to him. But then over here in verse 1 it says, uh, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared in the flames of fire. They use it interchangeably. Uh, I believe every time in the Old Testament where you have a statement, God spoke to somebody, that if you go back and look at the whole context, you're going to find that really God is speaking to an angel. The angels were messengers of God. And even uh, remember uh, with Jacob, where he made the statement that he had seen God face to face, and yet we looked at the context, it was really an angel. And in the same sense here, that, uh, that we find this, this method of speech used throughout the Bible, that when God does something through either an individual or a group of people or a nation, then God will state it, I did it. But you go back and you read it, and it's been accomplished through that nation, whether he says, I'm going to do this to you, and really uses the Babylonians to do it, or the Assyrians. And in the same way here, you would read that God spoke, but in reality, it was the it was the angel that was speaking. And I think that's true in all the context, that the literal one doing the speaking is the angel, but then the angel was revealing the, the message from God. <coughs> I believe also on that, that that man in his sin is not fit uh, to come directly before God. And that's why the need for Jesus as an intermediate, and just like when we pray today, we've been taught to pray in the New Testament, uh, we come to you in the name of Jesus. In the name of literally means by the authority of. That we have no authority whatsoever to go directly to God. God is perfect and holy and, and we're in our sins. 
and it's only through Christ that we can approach him. And I think in the same way, remember Isaiah spoke of the separation of man from God because of sin, that man has separated himself from God, and God is dealing with, with man through the angels, and the angels are the medium that's carrying the information. Uh, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, the angels are ministering spirits for those of us that will inherit salvation. Okay, um, in verse 5, uh, told him to take off his sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground, and I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this Moses hid his face, and again, the statement like earlier, I don't know how that could have had any meaning whatsoever to Moses, unless he had already been instructed concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another interesting thing here to me is, in the worship, now, he told him to take off his sandals, the place where he was standing was holy ground. Of course, he's standing just on the dirt, and he's outside. Uh, it was holy because of the presence of God. Now, that same ground was no holier than any other ground uh, before that point, and I don't believe it was any holier afterwards, but it was because of the presence of God. I think that's an important concept because it, uh, there are some people that attach holiness to a building, you know, when it comes to, to worshiping and all when really, uh, it's, it's uh, I, know, I don't know about y'all's experience, but we have had a number within our fellowship that, uh, uh, I'm talking about the churches that I've been affiliated with in the past, that would not eat in the building or, or have any kind of activity in the building because of, the, of, of attaching some sense of holiness to it. The Catholics fostered this belief all through the centuries and all. But it's not the building, and it wasn't the temple. It was the presence of God. And I think when Christians come together, that type of reverence ought to be there wherever you worship God. If you're worshiping in your house, or out in the park, or in the church building. And the reverence ought to be there because of the, the presence of God. Uh, the statement that Jesus made, where two or three gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. And so because you're in the process of worshiping God and studying His Word and praying, that that makes the situation holy. Once the worship has taken place and all, then I don't believe that building or that temple or whatever is any more holy than this piece of ground was. But it was because of the presence. But then on the other side now, on the one hand you have those that uh, that make the building holy uh, when it's not. Then on the other hand, I've been into worship situations that were conducted in a very trite way. And where there was, uh, you know, where the, the, where the attitude was one like a ball game or something of that nature, you know. And uh, the the People's conversation and everything was, was about everything in the world except the spiritual. And there again, I think there's a time and place for everything. And when I read this, and it tells Moses, man, you, you know, you're in the presence of God. I think in the same way, when we, when we gather to worship and study the Bible and whatnot, during that period of time that we've set aside, then I think that's not the time for, uh, you know, the other things out in the world. And then once we've concluded it, then we're, you know, back in a different situation. This thing, this will happen again later on with with uh, Joshua. Okay, God tells them in verse 8 that he's come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, up into a land, uh, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. And when it says a land flowing with milk and honey, it was a very prosperous land. It was much more prosperous then than it, has, than it is right now. In fact, it's interesting to me to read uh, I was reading something in National Geographic not too long back, but we think a lot of that part of the world today is just desert, 
and yet it's referred to as a land of milk and honey. And, and even today, we look over at Israel and we say, man, what, what is so great you know, about that land? But the land has changed, and it wasn't always that way. And uh, it's just like uh, what has happened in northern Africa. The Sahara Desert is growing at a rate of several thousands of yards every single solitary year. And it's because of the way the people are handling the terrain and all. And anytime you go into an area and you cut down the trees, you also affect the rain pattern that's in that area in a very negative sense. China has uh, has created a lot of waste land in what would have it was at one time lush land because they went in and cut all the trees and they realized their mistake. And the Chinese some time now have been in a process of uh, reforesting their country because they realized they affected the water patterns and all. Right now, we're concerned of what's, what's happening in Brazil with all the trees and all that they're cutting down. And so I'm saying that there may, the part we're living at right now, if time goes on a thousand years from now, it may be a desert with, with absolutely nothing that we can do things to alter. And from everything I've read uh, of the historical records in antiquity and then the study of the, the geologist and the, and the material I've read in National Geographic and all, they all are unanimous that at one time this was a very lush land. And it's just simply the way that it's been handled over the years that has turned it into the, the type place it is now. Okay, uh, uh, God speaks to Moses, uh, tells him to go back to the people. Moses, of course, has his uh, reservations. And verse 11, let's see, uh, uh, Mark read verse 11 and through 14. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and they say, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, now this word, I am, the Jehovah's Witness make a big thing about the word Jehovah. You know, In fact, I had one come to the other door the other day and talk with him. And they, like, that is almost their mission, to get the true name of God out and to use that name. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word, is really four consonants, Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. And we put vowels so we can pronounce it. And we come up with Yahweh when we put our vowels in there. Jehovah is an anglicized Yahweh. And it's a combination of uh, Lord and this I am. And so we call it the word Jehovah. So first of all, Jehovah, is, like I was telling him, is, is really an English word. It's been anglicized to give us something that has meaning that we can pronounce. Now, here is the meaning. The, the root meaning of this term is I am. And so I don't care if you use the term Jehovah or Allah or God. That doesn't matter. Words are just simply symbols for thoughts. And it's the thought that is conveyed to your mind when a word is said that's important. And so when you're conversing with people... You have to be careful to use the proper words to convey the thought to them that you want to. And so, if I was in an idolatrous country, God wouldn't be good enough. I would have to be more specific to identify the God of the Bible. 
But in a country such as we live, you can use the term God, and everybody out there understands you're speaking the God of the Bible that, that's revealed himself. So it really carries, I'm saying, whether it's God or Jehovah, that's, uh, to my mind, uh, totally a Semitic argument that has no value to it whatsoever. It, 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 God does convey the right thing. But the root meaning here is I am. And that is the root meaning of this word uh, Jehovah. Now, when you look at this, you can also see that why later on in the book of John, when Jesus made the statement to the Jews, when they were trying to figure out just who in the world he was, and he said before Abraham was, I am, and what happened as soon as he said that? They grabbed stones and was going to kill him and for blasphemy. When he said that, he equated himself with God. Okay, now this also is very important if you're studying with a group like that who denies the equality of Jesus and God. The whole question is, why did the Jews kill him in the first place? Uh, they would have accepted Jesus as a prophet. What they were not, the miracles proved it was somebody special. What they were not willing to accept him was literally God incarnate on an equal basis with God. And so that's why when we read this, when uh, that man, that was firmly fixed in that Jewish mind. And when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, that just flew all over them. And they would have killed him if they could have got him at that point. Okay, then he tells them that is his name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. No beginning, no, no end, just I am. Okay, now he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he tells Moses what he wants him to do. And verse 19 he says something. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand. So he knows in advance. We see the perfect foreknowledge of God. He's sending Moses to do a job. He knows in advance it's not going to be received. But that's fine with God. Because what God wants to do, and, and later on we learn, and Paul elaborates in Romans, where he says that God raised up Pharaoh. God knows what an old hard-hearted individual that Pharaoh was. And so he providentially cared for him and allowed him to reach this half plateau of, of king of Egypt. Because if Pharaoh had not been so hard-hearted, God would not have had the opportunity to display all his power in Egypt. And God wanted the most obstinate, hard-hearted individual up there. He didn't make him that way. Pharaoh was that way. And we'll look at some things here as we, as we go through here. But God providentially cared for him, saw that he got in that position, and then God was going to tackle him, knowing that in Pharaoh's rebellion against God, it would give God an opportunity to totally humble Pharaoh and in the process humble all the idols of Egypt and reveal himself as the, the true God to all. Okay, now in verse 21, he tells them that the end result of all he's going to do is that the Egyptians would be favorably disposed towards them so that they would let them go and not empty-handed. They would send, send them out with prosperity. Okay, now Moses has an honest question in chapter 4. Uh, what if you do not, they do not believe me or listen to me? Okay, again, God then asks him what's in his hand. He tells him a staff. Now, he tells him to throw it down. It becomes a snake. Picks it up. It becomes a staff. Then he tells him to put his hand in his bosom. It becomes leprous. Put it back in. It's clean. He says, take these signs to Pharaoh. Now, for the first time, and this is going to be consistent all the way through the Bible, if we're going to study miracles with anybody concerning miracles as they're revealed in the Bible, the miracle would take place for one reason, make a believer. And that's what it would happen. And we're going to find that evidence can be so powerful 
that you can make an intellectual believer out of somebody, whether or not they even want to believe or want to even trust. And so the reason for this miracle was not to astound everybody or anything of that nature. The reason for the miracles is to, Moses needed for the Israelites to believe in him, and he needed for Pharaoh, and how in the world, I mean, here you are, Moses, going back to talk to everybody, and you tell them, God's talked to me through a burning bush out there. Now, they're going to laugh, laugh right in your face until the signs took place, and then that would be the motivation for the belief. Okay, now, Moses still has a problem. Uh, let's see, Nancy, read that in verse uh, 10, uh, 10 through 13. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow with speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Okay, now, Moses is 80 years of age here. And uh, not only was he 80, but he makes a statement, I've never been eloquent. And so he, uh, he is somebody who is not a good speaker. That's interesting. He's 80 years of age. He's not a great speaker. And we notice something in the way that God, the type of person that God uses. The Apostle Paul was a physically sick individual. He apologized for his appearance. He was not near the great speaker that, that uh, some of the others were. And in fact, he even mentioned the fact that Apollos was a much better speaker than, than he was. Yet he had to get all the other apostles, and he was the one that God used to write about half the New Testament. Moses has the right kind of faith and the strength of character to do what God wants done. And that's strength of character and faith in God and zeal for his will is more important than so many things that we put a lot of emphasis on. And so he's the man for the job. He argues. And so God lets him use Aaron as his spokesman. And so Aaron will go and will do the speaking. And Moses, God will speak to Moses. Moses will get the information to Aaron. And then Aaron will do the speaking. Uh, later on, after they get out of Egypt, you might, we might say, well, why did God just call Aaron in the first place? Why go through Moses and then to Aaron? But when Aaron gets through making that golden calf, we're going to see the difference between Aaron and Moses. There was a big difference there. There is no substitute at all for integrity and for strength of will and character and things like that. And Moses obviously had that, and that was what Paul had going for him also. There's just simply no, no substitute at all for those qualities. I think uh, we, we've always made that mistake, and I guess we'll continue to do it. Remember when... Uh, even Samuel was going to pick a king. And God had to tell Samuel that I don't look on man does. You know, you look on the outward appearance. I look on the inner person when he had picked David. And even today, when churches uh, look for uh, elders or preachers or whatever, so often they're looking for the, the person. They, the number one thing to look at is, is sheer speaking ability. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with anybody. They, if you've got that too, that's fine. But I'm saying that's the number one criteria is gift of gab, speaking ability, and meeting people and all. And I wonder how many times over the years that very devout, sincere, conscientious people who had strong will and a lot of character were not allowed to be in the position where they could have done the most good because the people just didn't look for those qualities. They looked for the, looked for the other qualities. Okay, now uh, Moses returns to Egypt. 
uh, God makes a statement now in verse 21 that uh, about Pharaoh, and he says, and let's see, right, the latter part of the verse, I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Now, we're going to just look through this because we already, all of us, know the story of what happened. And all we want to notice in these next few uh, uh, sections, we know all the plagues that God brought on him one at a time. But the point that uh, I think is important when you study with somebody else is to be able to show that God did not do any mystical thing to harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, I don't know how that God could harden his heart and then hold him responsible for having a hard heart. That never has made sense to me. Uh, it's like the Calvinist belief that we, that we are born totally depraved and incapable of any good whatsoever, and then through the Holy Spirit, God will regenerate us. Well, if I'm totally depraved and incapable of any good, then it just doesn't seem fair to me that I would be held accountable for something that I have no control over. And so he says he'll harden his heart. The question is, how do he do it? Well, hold your place there, and notice some other passages on this. Uh, uh, come on over to the uh, 7th chapter, verse 3. He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay. And then, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen. Okay, and then in verse 22, the Egyptians did the same thing with their secret hearts. Pharaoh's heart became hard. And then, uh, come on over to the, uh, uh, let's say, uh, verse 15 of chapter uh, 8. Pharaoh saw that there was relief, and notice now, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And then, uh, uh, in verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. And then, again, in verse 32, but this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. Now, when we put all of that together and, and read the context, what we find is, in fact, let's see again where uh, Pharaoh hardens. Turn over to chapter 9 now, in verse 34. Uh, Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, and he sinned again. He sinned. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then look at, at right after it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, look at 10. And remember, we put those chapters there. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his officials. So you just read that Pharaoh and officials hardened their own hearts. Now he says that God hardened it. Now, when we read the context of all of it, what we find is that, that God did things. And what God did made Pharaoh mad. And so God, Pharaoh would come pleading to Moses, you know, you go ahead and, and get all these frogs out of the way or do such and such, you know. Uh, give me some relief. And Moses would give him some relief. Well, then Pharaoh would look at it and begin to think, maybe this is coincidence. You know, maybe it just happened this way. And he, he'd revert right back and harden his heart and says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give, give in. And so Pharaoh does this over and over. And what happens is that he just simply gets mad at what's going on, does not want to accept the fact that the God of Moses is stronger than all his gods. And so every time that he had a little reprieve, then he come along and hardened his heart. And God hardened it only in the sense that, that he did whatever was going on that, that, that Pharaoh was reacting to. And so you have really the same thing that if I say something that makes you mad, you can uh, say it in two different ways. 
You can say, Mark got mad, or you can say, Paul made Mark mad. Either way. And we use that, we use that statement all the time, that we, he made her mad, or she made him mad, or they make me mad, or somebody else may say simply, he got mad. And, and either way that we understand it. In the same way that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and this is true anytime I think throughout the Bible when you find this kind of situation. If you go and you read the entire context, you find the way that God affected the heart was by the information and what he did. Uh, we have it now in the, in the positive sense of in Romans. Uh, the statement is made there in Romans 5 that uh, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, my question is, why is it any glory to God if the only reason I love is because in some mystical way he's made me love? But when you read the whole context, the very next statement is, somebody might die for a righteous man. Peradventure for a good man, somebody might die. But while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And so the Holy Spirit has given us this information. And the result of that information has been to cause us to love God. And then John comes along and interprets that and says, we love God because he first loved us. And so all the way through here, I don't believe you have God doing anything mystical. I don't believe God has ever done anything to affect the human heart. But God does things in the realm of providence, or he gives information, and then that information might make somebody mad, may cut their heart, or it may break their heart and cause them to repent. It's just simply the way they choose to react to the information. Anybody have any comments on anything that we're covering here? Okay, uh, we continue on in the 10th chapter through the plagues that he's, uh, various plagues that he's bringing on them. And then he starts trying to work out a compromise with the Israelites in the latter part of the 10th chapter. Uh, Moses refuses to compromise. In other words, he's willing to let them go worship but leave the kids here. Or go worship but leave the animals here. Uh, he, he wants still to have some kind of control over them. And Moses' offering is no. We take everything, our animals, our children, everything, when we go worship. Okay, now, uh, uh, verse chapter 11, the statement in the first verse, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here, and when he goes he will drive you out completely. Again, the absolute perfect foreknowledge of God. And knowing the hearts, he knew exactly and how Pharaoh was going to act. He could have taken the firstborn on the very first miracle. Uh, he chose to do it this way. Now, something's happened, though, in verse 3. Moses himself has become highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. And so we see all of these signs have done just what God has wanted done, that Moses has become highly reverenced and respected for the God of the Israelites. Okay, now he... The death angel uh, goes in at the command of God, takes all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, including their animals, doesn't touch the Israelites. The Israelites are told to slaughter a lamb and to sprinkle the blood on the door and the lintel post, and it says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. And from that day, later on we get to the institution of the Passover, and from that day all the way up to the time of Jesus, the Jews observed their Passover feast. And in fact, they still observe that time of year now. They observed the Passover feast, and where God passed over, and they sprinkled the door and the blood in the little post. This, they did not understand it was a type of the Christ to come. 
And it was at the time of the Jewish Passover when they were actually in the process of offering the Pascal lamb that Jesus was being crucified and offering and offered as, as the sin offering for mankind. Uh, it's when John referred to him and he said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then it was at this Passover that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that we observe at this present time. Okay, uh, he tells them that he's going to bring judgment uh, on the land of Egypt. The judgment takes place as a result of the judgment taking place and the firstborn being killed. Then Pharaoh orders them out. The people give them all kinds of their possessions and belongings and things of this nature. Uh, they've come to respect the God of Israel and they're going, they're going out. Now, and they speak of a group of people called the Hebrew. And this group of people was in Egypt, and judgment had been passed on the Egyptians, and now they were coming to the land of Canaan. And the reason we find these documents going back and forth is they're writing with fear of this group of people, and they're talking about banding together and what they can do to fight that. So what I'm saying is that the fact that a power, uh, you don't find the word Jew, the word Jew didn't come into existence until the Babylonian captivity. And you simply find a power, a group of people that the Canaanites called the Hebron that was in Egypt and they defeated Egypt and humbled Egypt and then they came out into the land of Canaan and you've got these people at this time in history writing these uh, tablets and showing fear and, and concern for the God of this people. Because, and they speak of a group of people called the Hebron. And this group of people was in Egypt and judgment had been passed on the Egyptians, and now they were coming to the land of Canaan. And the reason we find these documents going back and forth is they're writing with fear of this group of people, and they're talking about banding together and what they can do to fight that. So what I'm saying is that the fact that a power, uh, you don't find the word Jew, the word Jew didn't come into existence until the Babylonian captivity. And you simply find a power, a group of people that the Canaanites called the Hebron, that was in Egypt, and they defeated Egypt and humbled Egypt, and then they came out into the land of Canaan, and you've got these people at this time in history writing these uh, tablets and showing fear and, and concern for the God of this people because of what they've done to the greatest power on earth. Uh, when we get to Ruth the harlot, or Rahab the harlot, uh, the reason she had become a believer is because of what she had heard of the, the God of the Israelites, and that had made her a believer in that, in that true God. It's also, now what God has also done with this, when the Jews went into the land, the fear the people had of the Jews helped them in conquering the land. And we see this with Jericho, how they all go inside the city and hold up. They're scared to death of this people. What would you think if you were uh, the Canaanite at this day and you know that the greatest power in the world is Egypt and you're very concerned about Egypt, very scared of them, and then here's this people coming out of Egypt, and you've learned that they have overthrown Egypt, and the entire Egyptian army has been overthrown in the Red Sea, that it opened up and swallowed the whole army, and that they have a God that's like no other God in the world, you'd be scared too. And so that God would use this, and so later on we come to passages where God says, I will put the fear of you in the people of the land. 
Well, he didn't, in some mystical way, cause those people to fear. But the information about what he had done, got, had accomplished here, got back to them, and then obviously, just like you and I, they were scared, and they had a fear, and that fear they had actually aided the Israelites as they went in and defeated that people. Okay, in the 13th chapter, we have the concentration of the uh, firstborn, and uh, this is where the Jew was told to set aside his firstborn as belonging to God because he'd been delivered. That included even the animals. Later on, God will do a trade-off. In lieu of the firstborn, he will take the Levites, and they will belong to him as a special people, and by virtue of his delivering the firstborn at, at this time. And then, of course, from this time on, the Jew was to give his firstborn of the animals and the lamb without blemish and recognize this is all dedicated to God. And it was, again, to reinforce his memory throughout his existence of what God had accomplished back at this point in time. Okay, they crossed the sea. In the 13th chapter, uh, God sets up Pharaoh. Uh, in the traveling of the Israelites, come on into the 14th chapter. Uh, Jack, let's see, did you read last Jack or Nash? Yeah, okay, Jack, read that 14th chapter in verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near, wherever that is, between Megadol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal, Bethlehem. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself to Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, so the Israelites did this. Okay, now what God has done, the route that he picked for the Israelites was not the shortest route, it was a longer route. And he is actually purposely taking them in sort of a circle. And you can go plot that on the map as you follow the towns. And so notice what he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, how did he do it? He didn't, he didn't do it in some mystical way. As they let him go, Pharaoh's people are observing him. And so God knows that when Pharaoh hears that they're like this, that he'll think they're just wandering around. They don't know where in the world they're going. And that he'll harden his heart and get his courage up again. And, and go after them. And so God knows that in advance, and so we see the way he hardens his heart is not by doing anything mystical. God just simply knew Pharaoh. And he knew if he did that, what exactly Pharaoh would do in reaction. So he did the same way that you and I might size up an individual with our finite minds and say, if you do such and such, in fact, coaches do this all the time when they study the personality of opposing players and all, that if you do such and such to him, you get you get him some mad, he'll file out in five minutes or, or or whatever. And God knew Pharaoh, and he knew when he did this that old Pharaoh would become stubborn, hard-hearted, and say, "Hey, these people are wandering around; they don't even know where they're going." And he'd go in after them. And so God set him up perfectly, knowing how he would react. Uh, okay, the king of Egypt was told in verse five that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials did just what God did. They did. They changed their minds and said, "We have. What have we done?" We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. And so now they make their chariots to, to go after them. Okay, and then verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and we've already read how he did it. So they pursued the Israelites who were march, marching out boldly. 
Okay, now, of course, we, we come through here where the, we see at first the lack of faith on the Israelites. And then Moses told them to use his staff. They open up the Red Sea. The Israelites march through on dry ground. And then their army is swallowed up by the, the Egyptian army is swallowed up by the sea. And the Israelites go out from that point. Now, for verification outside the Bible, you can simply say this. And that is, take your Israelite history all the way back, and you go right back to this great big event. How did you implant something in the mind of all of those people to the extent that they would carry it for 1,500 years down to the time of Christ and believe it without question, and it would be the number one fact in their existence, the number one convincing power that the God they serve was true God if you were dealing with some fictitious event. In other words, if you can do that with a fictitious event, uh, you've done something that's never been done before. Because that first generation would be the one that would have to be duped in, into believing that, that the Egyptian army was going to put yourself in the position of that first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt. And, and somebody has, has deceived you into believing that you walked through on dry ground and that they came in and the sea swallowed them up. Now, I don't know how you deceive anybody on something like that. You either got somebody making up a bold-faced lie or, it, or it's the truth. And so that, and the fact is that they all believed it to the point that they would leave. And then the historical record speaks for itself. The people in the land were scared to death of them, and they went in and took them off, picked them off one at a time because they, they were scared of them. In the fifteenth chapter, uh, Miriam composes and reads a song in, in worship to God. And again, this song would be one that they would sing over and over in the history of Israel. And a reminder, we learned something of the, that our own method of songwriting, uh, simply talking about events that God has accomplished for his people, and then the exaltation and the praising of God in the process. Okay, let's see. Come on over to uh, the 15th chapter still. Uh, at the waters of Marah and Elam, uh, as we go through here into the land of Canaan, what we find out is the Israelites' faith was about as long as the end of your finger that it, it proceeded from one water hole to the next and from one meal to the next. That they really, and no, no sooner did they get out of one fix and into another one, but they didn't show much faith in God. And Moses, of course, along the way, becomes very discouraged with them and will eventually cause himself problems as a result. Verse 26, uh, let's see. Uh, Louise, would you read that verse 26? Yeah, verse 26. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the, any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Okay, uh, the key in on that, I will not, if you obey me, do what I say, I will not bring any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. And then hold your place there and flip over to 23, 26. Read that, Louise, verse 26. And none will miscarry 
will be barren in the land. I will give you a full lifespan. Okay, actually, I should have backed up to verse 25. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing <clears throat> will be on your food and water, and I will take away sickness among you, and none of you will miscarry and be barren, and I will give you a long life, long life in the land. And then Deuteronomy 7, 15, same concept. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the, the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. Okay, back to the key verse here. I will not bring on you any of the diseases of the Egyptians. The book, None of These Diseases, by S.I. McMillan, was taken from this particular verse. Now, as we go through here, we're going to find out that God was going to keep this promise not by doing some mystical, mysterious thing where he caused some people to become sick and he caused them to be well. That wasn't happening. The Israelites could be sick or well. The key was if they obeyed the commands of God. God is going to give the Jews a health code. And the health code was so absolutely perfect that you could not improve on that health code this present day. In fact, that's in the book, None of These Diseases, uh, written by a doctor. That's the point he next, that even today in the 20th century, you could not improve on, on that health code. Uh, the Egyptians had a multitude of different diseases and afflictions because of their lifestyle, some of the foods they was eating, the way they ate those foods, the way they treated various problems. Uh, for example, if, if you had a certain type of disease, uh, Macmillan in his book goes back and quotes from some of the Egyptian health cures of that day. Uh, they may cut you, cut your skin, and then they would get some turtle dung and, and some dirt and, and some other things and mix it up together and rub that into that cut, and you wound up with lockjaw and died. And so that one of the top killers of that day for sick people was the physicians. In fact, it's interesting that all through the centuries, physicians... If you were sick, the best thing to do was run from the doctor. Run from the doctor if you had any sense. Physicians killed more than they did anything by, by some of the cures that they have. And so, again, obviously they didn't know anything about germs. Infection took place every time they cut or opened up anybody. They bled people, thinking that you know evil spirits were there and you had to bleed people. Okay, the health code taught the Jew that the life of the flesh was in the blood. The Jews didn't bleed. They taught the Jews to practice quarantine. Any time a person had any type of communicable disease or any type of a rash on his skin or anything, that he was to go outside, away from others, cover himself and holler unclean, and then the priest would go out and inspect him every seventh day, and not until he was clean would he come back around. They were to not only wash, but they were to wash in running water. They were to not eat the, if you look at the unclean and the clean foods, the unclean foods were primarily carnivorous type animals. Uh, the animals that were clean were the animals that ate vegetation. And basically, we pretty well adhere to that today. A uh, good example in our society, uh, pork, something that was unclean to them. But there again, if you study meat and preservatives, you find that more preservatives is used in pork than in other meats because it takes more to preserve it. It spoils easier. 
and it, it has it's uh, full of sodium nitrates as a result of the difficulty in keeping it. And of course, we all know that you, you've heard ever since you were a little bitty child, when you eat pork, cook it well done. Okay, so it's a, in other words, we handle pork in our society because we do know about the germs and etc. and things, and so we know how to handle it. I believe you can eat pork in a safe way with our knowledge, and, 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 but not with the information they had back then. Uh, they could not eat the shellfish like shrimp, uh, scallops, uh, oysters. Again, we catch those dudes and we put them on ice immediately. They didn't have ice. They didn't have refrigeration. We know that they deteriorate almost immediately. And so again, with our information basis of the way bacteria spreads and the decaying process and putting it on ice, we can honestly eat in a healthy way today some things that they could not then. But they didn't have that, they didn't have the information, and so that they could not eat in a safe way. Uh, suffice it to say, to appreciate the health code and the law of Moses, I honestly believe you have to go back and study the health code as practiced by all the other people around them and see how many thousands of them were dying because of the health practices of the people. And the Jews were uh, given what they were operating on, had the most perfect health code to hit the world, and the question remains to this day, where did Moses get that information? Well, practiced isolation when we're sitting in. Yeah, that's what I said, quarantine. Oh, yeah. Quarantine. Oh. And then wasn't there a law that said they couldn't eat milk on the same dish? Yeah, they did not eat milk and milk on the same dish. Uh, again, I, in fact, I heard a chemist, when I, I took chemistry at uh, Middle Tennessee, and I remember the statement the guy had made, we were talking about various things, said that, uh, Again, getting back to our practice today is so much different than theirs. They would eat on a platter. And then, of course, they washed that platter as good as they could. They eat on that same platter later on, and they carried it in a hot climate. He said if you took uh, meat and milk and on the same platter and allowed it to, you know, to uh, spoil, and you didn't get that absolutely perfectly clean, that you had, you know, he named whatever poison that you had, that you were in for some real problems as a result of eating that. Of course, we know now all your problems with ham and meat and any animal product, but right, that that was one of the things that they were not to do. Several other things also. Uh, Adam Clark does real good in his book with their health code. The best I've ever seen on it is that one book, None of These Diseases. The, the man was a, uh, a Methodist, a very conservative Methodist, and also a very good doctor. And he did that book, you know, on health code. It's been used in Christian evidences from for as long as it's been written, you know. But the, and of course, the point he continues to make all the way through there. Somebody has to answer where Moses got that information if he didn't get it from God, because he did not get that. He was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians, and we know what he would have been taught in Egypt. And the there's just no answer for that information except that it comes from another source. Sort of like he's in the way the Egyptians believed about how the earth was formed. They thought it was on the back of a big, huge right. turtle supported on the back of an elephant. And all. And yet, Isaiah wrote that it was, you know, the suspension of it. Um, the circle of the earth upon nothing. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, Moses not writing anything like that. And, but right, the Egyptians, turtle, uh, the Hindus, a big elephant, the philosophers and the Greeks used to debate about the pillars that held the earth up and then what held the pillars up and they had tremendous debates over trying to get down to that last thing that was holding the whole shebang up. But you're right, another, the, the, the material itself 
to fully be appreciated. You, when you go back and look at the material that was available to them, uh, that they, and then they wrote this material that has stood up to this present time. So God's law was perfect. Uh, I think the same way to today. Uh, I believe that uh, people are healthy by living within the laws of nature uh, and the moral laws. And uh, to the degree that we do it, I believe we, we have health. To the degree that we don't, I believe we suffer consequences there. And of course, all of that from within a framework that heredity hands us some things that we have absolutely no control over. It was interesting, uh, last night, uh, by any chance, did anybody see the 2020 special that was on last night on aging? Mm -hmm. That was interesting. You saw about, you know, the, uh, the, the forecast that, uh, that we're not too far away from you can from when you can expect to live 115 to 130 years. And it says, the children, babies now. Right. Said that our, when we say average lifespan, but said that is not maximum lifespan, that's average lifespan. He says that scientists recognize maximum lifespan is 115 to 130 years. And then he dealt with all the things, but when he, everything that they're dealing with involves nutrition and the way you treat your body and exercise and certain things like that. And he said that, you know, with, with this knowledge, if you put it into practice and you don't do certain things, and so really, I thought as I was listening to that last night, he's telling you you can almost double the life expectancy by pursuing a certain health code and avoiding certain things and doing certain things. This is exactly what Moses is saying here, that all of these problems the Egyptians have got, if you live in keeping with this law, you know, you won't have that. What? But if they didn't, they'd have exactly the same problem. Um, the problem <clears throat> washing running water, right? Yeah. Which purifies and stuff. And then weren't they taught to, to bury their guns? Yeah. They, whenever they, they traveled as a large group, and they were taught, we'll get to that as we go through it, and in Leviticus, they were taught to dig ditches, and then uh, that all their dung and all was to be buried and covered up. Uh, to show you how advanced that was, if you travel in third world countries to this present day, they don't do that. They just don't. And they have all kinds of diseases uh, that are spread because of human waste that just simply are not disposed of and cared in a, in a right way. I know that uh, in, when we was in the Orient, when I was in the Marine Corps, we were constantly warned about you know their foodstuffs and all because of the way it was there. I mean, they just went out and they go to the bathroom and that's it. And there was no covering up or anything. Whereas on the other hand, the uh, military, when we were out in the field, we had these little old spades like you've seen them here on your pack and all. And we were all told, you, you, when they, you go out to the bathroom and all, the ditches were dug and everything was always covered up. But the, the people themselves didn't do that. And, but they didn't. They had they had diseases and problems that they would not have if they were cleaner people. Just being a clean people and bathing on a regular basis is going to save you a lot of sicknesses and diseases that you, that you would never have otherwise. <clears throat> okay. Anybody with anything else through that fifteenth uh, chapter? Okay. In the sixteenth uh, through the seventeenth chapter. Uh, God begins to introduce them to the Sabbath day and in the way that he feeds them he tells them that they're to gather enough on the sixth day to last them through the seventh day uh, he has a little problem getting this through to them we find that they grumble and complain all along the way 
the disgust of Moses as a result of this. In the 18th chapter, Jethro visits the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. He observes that Moses is trying to do it all. And so he makes a suggestion to Moses about picking elders out who are spiritual people, letting them be judges over all the differences, and then Moses take care of the most important things. We see something else here. God is giving uh, law to the people, but then in those areas of carrying out the law, where their own God-given intelligence can function and figure out these matters, God allows them to do it. And so uh, a principle of choosing elders and judges among the people to administer the law comes about as a result of a suggestion from Jethro. And Moses hears it, said that's a great idea, and puts it into practice, and it'll be carried all the way down to the history of Israel. Okay, let's uh, pause then. And we've, we've got up to the point that uh, we're ready for the Ten Commandments. And so then next week, we'll start with the 19th chapter, and we'll go through the, through the Ten Commandments and see, well, we'll see how far that we go. And as we get past the Ten Commandments, we'll look at the commandments that come directly from God. Then we're going to look at the rest of the Jewish laws and see that there are a lot of laws there that Moses simply gave, and God permitted because of the hardness of their heart. And they really were not directly given by, by God. And, I, and that becomes important, I think, in reading this and studying with others and showing that what laws came directly from God and then were, were things that God permitted because of the hardness of their heart and the fact that they were gradually coming out of a certain situation. We'll pick up there next week.